Yeah, so hello everyone, my name is Rensit, um, and uh, it's my privilege to speak to you on Pentecost Sunday today. Uh, so in the church calendar, there are these milestones, and today is the day that the church all over the world celebrates the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, or essentially the birth of the church. So today is the church birthday, if you want to see it like that. And uh, in, a, in a big way, we just want to acknowledge again the, the working of the Spirit in our midst as He um, guides us, as He leads us, um, and even as happened at Pentecost, I, I almost trust for something similar today, that um, as the Spirit was poured out and, and um, Peter started sharing, then the people were cut to the heart, and they asked, what must we do to be saved? And he said, believe and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that that would be something of our experience again today, that, that if there is something in the message, there are some hard elements in this message, if there are some things that cut to the heart, don't just let it pass by. Repent, take a moment, stand still, and uh, yeah, bring it to the Lord, and He will forgive you. And then you will again experience the fullness of the Spirit in those areas as well. So yeah, I pray that something of that would also be true today. So we are currently busy with the book of First John, and um, by the end of today we'll be at uh, kind of halfway through chapter 2 after spending about two months in the book. So... <laughs> So, yeah, um, but, but the idea is that we're trying to um, cover a few broad-scale topics um, as to uh, the, the message that John is trying to convey, because he ends the letter in a, in a very interesting way. He says, I've written these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ, that you have eternal life. So I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. There is an assurance of salvation. There is a stability in our faith that he wants to establish in us, and that is why he wrote this letter, and you can kind of pick this up, that as he's kind of going along, writing the letter, it's almost like he can't help himself. He's going from one thought to the next, and he's like, oh, but I haven't quite finished this thought. Let's carry on with this thought. And then he's just kind of bubbling over with all of these core things he wants to, to board into the church. And he, he really, really, um, Hans was speaking about this, he really speaks like a grandfather to his kids. It's just like, these are the important things I've learned in life. Walking with Jesus, I've seen him, I've handled him, but these are the things that are important. These things will um, help you to grow up into maturity of um, faith in, in, uh, in Christ. And that was the message that Hans left us with last week. He was focusing on the three stages of maturity that John highlights. He says, I write to you little children, I write to you young men, I write to you fathers. And there's this progression that we have in our faith as we mature. And, and for example, for the young men, they get to a point where they they have overcome the evil one. It's no longer the, the external fight is no longer the, the big battle. It's not, not so much about what you do anymore, but it's now really where are your desires? Where is your, your affections centered? And um, that's the thing that, um, that John does. Is it's, it's so easy for us to, to actually fool ourselves and think that we're, we're doing okay, but uh, because we're doing all the external things correctly and there's nothing that someone can point to and say, hey, you're doing this thing wrong. But John draws deeper. He, he says, what do you really want? What is that thing that really drives you? What is your, where is your desire really placed? If you were to um, consider your heart, consider your thoughts, what are the things that consume your mind? What are the things that your heart longs for? Uh, and a way you think about it is, what are you hoping to do the moment you leave these doors? What is the thing you're looking forward to when you get home? Um, because that is, that's really saying something of where are your desires really? What is you, the thing you really want? When nobody sees, when nobody's around, what is your heart longing for? And that's, that's the point he's drilling down into. And, and that leads us to today's passage, which is 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17. But I'm going to just throw in verse 18 as well, because it, uh, it will become relevant a little bit later. So, 
Uh, yeah, he writes, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. Now, if you're wondering why the Antichrist suddenly popped up in the middle of this, um, it will become a bit more clear as I go on. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really driving this point home. Do not love the world. That's, that's really all that this message is about. Do not love the world um, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's, that's really the core. And, and I want to maybe start by, by sharing, a, a, I suppose, a testimony, because there are so many stories I can share of where I failed at this, um, but I thought I'd maybe share a success story, <laughs> um, put myself in a bit of a better light there. So um, when I was, when we, Jason and I, when we just moved to Stellenbosch, I was at that stage still busy with my PhD and um, didn't really have income to speak of. Jess was uh, working at a, at a non-profit, so she also had a very small income. So if you looked at our budget, every month we would really end in the red. Like our budget would be negative at the end of each month. And we were living very frugally. We weren't spending money on things we didn't need. And uh, we were even li living rent-free because it was my parents' flat at that stage. And still we were not really quite making it. Um, but yeah, we trusted the Lord and he, he really helped us through that. And uh, through the work of my, that I did in my PhD, there was, was some connection that I made and some, some part-time work I did for someone in Joburg, and they really liked what I did, and then they said they want to take this thing I, I started to build, and they want to spin it out into a company, and uh, because I, I was instrumentally involved in this, they want to give me a big portion of the shares in the company, and they would even be able to, because they're, they've got a parent company, they'd even be able to pay me a salary so that I can work on this a little bit more full-time um, with the understanding that I'm still going to try to finish my PhD. And uh, so, on the one hand, you might say, well, there's the Lord's provision, like, you, you needed money, <laughs> there's the provision, the Lord opened the door. But, but in, in my heart, I knew that I was already too busy, I didn't have capacity for this. Um, so, if, if I was to say yes to this opportunity, something would have to budge in my life. I would have to spend less time with my family, I would have to spend less time with the Lord, less time serving the church, less time investing into the kingdom, and all of these things would have been compromised if I said yes to this opportunity. So I, I called the guy back and I said, so first of all, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. But, and I, I told him straight, it's like, I don't see how saying yes to this will help the advancement of God's kingdom. But I can see how the enemy can use this to destroy me. So I have to say no to you just because, honestly, this is not going to be helpful. Um, and as, as much as we needed the, the money, I, I just trusted God in that. And he, he really caught us. Like, he provided. We never, never had never truly had any lack, and um, you know, really put our feet in a solid place. But it, it is, it's that thing of, what does it help a man to profit the whole world, yet lose his soul? What does it help if we have all the financial provision we need, but at the end of the day, like, we're not with Jesus? Our hearts have grown core towards Him. And that's, that's really the, the core of this message. So I want to start by saying that there's a love that God hates. The love of the world is the love that God hates. And, and the, the interesting thing is of how God works, and I, I want to make, make this clear. God is love. Love comes from Him. Um, he is the source of love. But if you love perfectly, you will also hate things perfectly. If, if you love someone perfectly, if I love my wife perfectly, anything that threatens her, I will hate. <laughs> if I love babies, for example, I will hate abortion. 
There's this contrast that always exists. If you truly love something or someone, anything that threatens that thing or that person will be something that you hate. And we have to speak in these extreme terms because that's the way that God speaks. If you, if you look in Psalm 97 verse 10, um, it says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. If you love the Lord, you must hate evil. And similar in Psalm 119 verse 163, um, he said, David writes, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. I love your law, but I hate falsehood. The, there are always these extremes. If you truly love something or someone, you will hate the thing that is contrary to that. It's this, this, these two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. They, it, they never mix. You can't be half in the one, half in the other. They are directly opposed to each other. Um, just to, to drive this point even further home, if you think about Jesus, um, he loved the temple. He loved his father's house. He loved it so much that when there was corruption of what was going on there with the money changers and people selling animals, he made a whip and he drove all of them out. And then it says, because it's written of him, zeal for your house will consume me. He so loved the house that when something was corrupting it, he had to do something about it. It drove him to that point where he actually had to drive them out. And if you go further on in the story, that, that seems to be that catalyst moment which caused him to be crucified. That's the main accusation they brought against him. It's like, okay, well, who are you to do this thing? And it's like, well, tear this temple down and brought it up. And I'll brought it up in three days. And it's like, okay, well, do you now say that you're better than this temple? Do you say that you're better than God so, or, or that you're equal to God? So this, this zeal in our hearts will sometimes drive us to do things that make no sense in the world. And they, they will actually sometimes um, you know, persecute us possibly even for that because these two systems are opposed. So then let's get back to 1 John 2 verse 15. I'm going to try to go through it a little bit verse by verse. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I want to emphasize this. You cannot love the world and the Father at the same time. You cannot love God and love the world at the same time. They are entirely mutually exclusive. These two do not fit in the same box. They are two different things. Um, if you love the world, it will push out the love for God in your heart. If you love God, it will push out the love of the world in your heart. Um, you cannot serve God and money. You can't serve two masters because the one you will love, the other one you will hate. That is just the reality of how it works. So now we have to ask the question, of course, what is the world? And uh, it's, it's quite an interesting thing if you really sit a little bit and think about it because we, we're called to not love the world. It says, it says, do not love the world. And then you read a little bit in a different place and it says, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So, so we're not to love the world, but God can love the world. It's like, <laughs> how does that make sense? So, so then you say, okay, great. Then there's, there's a problem in the Greek. Let's go to the Greek and let's see what it says there. Then you go to John 3.16, you look for the word world, and you see it's the word cosmos. Cosmos as in an organized system, like the, the opposite of chaos. Chaos is disorganization. Cosmos is it's organized. So you see, okay, cosmos. God loves the cosmos. Okay, and then you go to 1 John 2 verse 15. It's like, do not love cosmos. It's like, okay, it's the same word. <laughs> so what do we do with that? And uh, I mean, like we've, we've got many of similar situations in, in English as well, where it's the same word, it has different meanings in different contexts. And then I think it's really important that we just take a moment to, to consider this, because it's a commonly used word throughout the New Testament. And, the, and there are three primary meanings of this word, but the, the definition is it's something that is organized, it's a system that, is, um, that exists it's in an organized way. Um, you can think of it when, it's, when we translate it as world, you can almost 
translate it as the world system. That is, that's one way of seeing it. So three definitions of the word um, cosmos, or, or three ways that we use it. And the interesting thing is, of these three, two of them we should actually love. One of them we should hate. So three definitions of the word cosmos, two of them we should love, one of them we should hate. Let's talk about the two that we should love. The first definition is the physical world. The, the physical, like plants, animals, uh, the mountains, the streams, all of these things reveal the glory of God and His majesty. We should love it. We, he said, be, um, like, I give you dominion over the world, essentially. Like, you are to rule over this thing. Like, take care of it. But then, like, I just want to make sure, sure you understand, I'm not saying we're environmentalists. We're not those people that stick our hand with super glue to the road, and then they have to cut the road out to get us out of that place. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen those videos. But yeah, anyways, the, we, we're not like that. Yet, we love the Creator, and we love what He has made. And we will... Take care of that. And I, and I, I want to say that it really points to the, the glory and wisdom of God if we look at the world and really consider it. Um, maybe I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but a, a big part of my research at the university is we, I'm trying to understand the internal workings of the cell and how, how it functions and, and uh, how you can, um, if there are certain diseases, how you can treat those diseases to try to you know, get people healthy again. And I'm just going to talk about the cell for a second here. So the cell <laughs> is an incredibly complicated machine. It's immensely complicated. In Darwin's time, they thought it was just like a little blob that sits there. And then as we develop microscopes that can look deeper and deeper into the cell, we, we realize that this is actually like a little city. There's constant messaging going around in the entire thing. The nucleus is like the brain of the, the cell that orchestrates everything. And then there are these highways along which these vesicles and organelles move in a very structured way. And then you've got the mitochondria which are like the powerhouses of the, the cell. And they, they, there's not just a couple floating around. There are hundreds of them in each cell that form a very complicated network as it's trying to um, like adapt to the, the current needs of the cell, as it's needing different, uh, it's, as it's experiencing stresses or needs more food or something. It will re remodel itself so that it can generate the energy where it's needed. And then if some of them become dysfunctional, then you, you have these little things called autophagosomes, which then go around the mitochondria, it kind of like eats it up, and then it, uh, it fuses with the lysosome, which then breaks this, uh, this mitochondria apart so that it can break it into its core components to then feed into new processes of making new mitochondria. And, and all of this constantly happens in every single cell in your entire body. And then when you look at that, it's like, oh, this clearly didn't happen by chance. Like, this is, has to have been designed by a glorious, whiz wise creator. Billions. <laughs> so it's, 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 uh, it's not really exactly... Um, yeah, something that can be comprehended. So it's, when, when you look at the physical world, you see the glory of God. And that is why we love the world. We love the physical world because we see the goodness and glory of God in it. The second definition of the word world refers to people. Um, and that's the human world. And, and uh, there's an interesting passage in John 1 verse 9 to 10 uh, where it uses both of these definitions kind of in the same sentence. It says, the true light who gives light to every man, that's not Jesus. Jesus is the true light. The true light who gives light to every man was coming into the world. Jesus was entering into the physical world from outside of this world. Um, and he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, in other words, the physical world was made through Jesus, it says the world did not recognize him. The people inhabiting the world did not recognize him. So it's not that the physical world didn't recognize him, it's the people that didn't recognize him. And that's where John 3.16 comes in. For God so loved the world. He so loved the people in this world system. So that whoever shall believe, it's the people 
That, that's that's the, the second definition of um, the world. And we ought to, just like Jesus and just like God loves the people in the world, in the world system that are lost and unsaved, in the same way we should love those people. So we should love the people in the world system. We should love the world the way God loves the world. And then the third definition, and this is now obviously, I think this is understood what we're talking about. The third definition of the word world is the in, invisible spiritual system of evil which is ordered and run by the devil. That is the, the definition of the world that we should hate. It's this invisible spiritual system of evil. It's not something necessarily that you can tangibly touch or feel. It's, it's a, better described as, as made up of ideas or activities or purposes, and, and it's run by the devil. And um, 1 John 5 verse 19, so it's still in the same book, he says that um, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The devil, he controls it, he holds it, he, he's, he's the one that, that's uh, running this world system. And then Ephesians 2 verse 1 and 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Like all of us at some point, we're following the course of this world. What does it mean to follow the course of this world? He explains. He says, it means that you are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's a very complicated way of saying it's pretty much just Satan. You're following the devil if you are running according to the course of this world. You might not think about it like that. You may not perceive that that's what you're doing, but you are playing directly into his hand, um, living in his system. Now, this world system, this, this evil system that is run by the devil, this is a system that is directly antagonistic and opposed to Jesus, to, to God. It's, it's an anti-God or it's an against-God system. Anti just means against. And that's where the word anti-Christ comes from. It's someone or, or people or a system that is anti-Christ, against Christ. Everything that Jesus stands for, that system is against Jesus. And that's, that's the system of the world. So it makes sense then that uh, Jesus would say in John 15, verse 18 and 19, um, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world system is opposed to Jesus and everything he stands for. So as soon as we align ourselves with Jesus, the system becomes opposed to us. This, that, that is just the, the nature of the kingdom of light and darkness. The, the two will always be enemies of one another. Now, in, in 1 John 4, still in the book of 1 John, he uh, elaborates a little bit further on this, this world system of how it actually works, and he says, um, 1 John 4, verse 1 to 6, um, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there are many false prophets, many people that claim to be speaking truth, um, yet they are... Uh, actually in the world. They're from the world. They're running in the same vein as the world system. Um, I'll say more about that just now. And, and it says, by this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So every spirit that, that uh, or like con continues to convey the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the historical Jesus, the one that is truly alive and working in us, um, anyone that, con that speaks of that Jesus, he is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. Again, the system that is against Jesus, uh, which you have heard is coming and which already is in the world at this time. So I'm like, we're already faced with the Antichrist system. I hope that's pretty obvious. Um, but th these false prophets that go out in the world, the entire purpose of the, this world system is to distract us away from the true Jesus. And it does this in 
whatever way it, you can imagine. So whether it is to just allure you with desires, and I'll speak more about that just now, or whether it is to just subtly teach something that is, is not properly representing Jesus and his salvation. So you need to, you, you can't just believe in Jesus, you also need to do these things. Then you are good enough to be accepted by God. That is part of the Antichrist system. So, I mean, like, just a more obvious examples is Islam. They've got the false prophet Muhammad. So, Muhammad says that essentially you must do certain things to please God. It's not just enough to believe in Jesus. It's like Jesus is, is just, um, he's just a good prophet, but he's not the son of God. It's not really recognizing Jesus who he is. It's not proclaiming the true Jesus. So, therefore, this is part of the Antichrist system. Um, Mormonism, that's even closer to Christianity. It teaches, again, that Jesus is just um, a God, essentially, amongst many gods. He's not really the perfect son of God, as, as we would understand him. Um, and also, it's, it's a very works-based religion, where there's a lot of things that you have to do in order to be acceptable to God. It's, it's a misrepresentation of Jesus. It's part of the Antichrist system. And then you get the very obvious ones, which is atheism, where it says, okay, well, there is just no God. Everything just came by, like, automatically from nothing. Um, and that's also, it's, it's just something that's trying to pull you away from God, to, to take away that responsibility before a just God that you would have to stand before one day. That is the, all part of this um, Antichrist world system. And then it says, um, verse 4, 1 John 4, verse 4, You little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That is, that is us that are with Jesus, that we have been caught out of the world, we are now with Jesus. Um, and it says, they are of the world, and the, that, that is why they speak from the world's perspective, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, and that is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. So, so there are two groups here, again. They are of the world, therefore they speak from the world's perspective. We are from God, and we speak from, speak from God's perspective. And these two things will will never match as being one thing. You will never have, have the ability to join them and make sense of it. It will always be two things that are opposing to each other. So this is clearly when John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, that is what he's referring to. Do not love the things that this world or the system offers you. Do not love the things that it, it's trying to, to uh, allure you with, to pull you in, um, because there are so many things that it's... it's, it's a, Put, this, put in this context of, oh, this is desirable, this is great, this will satisfy. It's, it's kind of giving it the appearance of light when actually it was birthed from the kingdom of darkness. And he says, do not love these things. Do not even desire these things. This is actually a, a very good test of, of you, how mature you are in a sense, of, of how you've grown in the Lord. Is if you look at your heart, if you consider your heart, like I was saying in the beginning, and you see that my heart constantly desires the things of the world, then I have to ask the question, like, have you really been saved fully? Because there is a, a transformation that he does in your heart that he changes your desires so that you will listen to him. You want to do him. Like it's, it's, you desire him. You desire him above all else. That is, that's a, a test that John gives us for are you truly in the faith? And I want to just maybe say at this point, throughout the book of 1 John, there are various tests that John gives to kind of test us. And that these tests are not at all designed to make a believer doubt in their own salvation. It is designed as an objective measure for us to, to just look at, consider our lives and say, am I heading into the direction of maturity or am I not? 
Because we can so easily fool ourselves and think, no, I'm actually doing, the, I'm doing okay. And then you re read the book of 1 John, it's like, okay, well, maybe I am loving the world a little bit too much here. Maybe I should just take a moment and take stock, realize where I'm at, and actually make some changes. Because in James 4, James writes very straight. He doesn't mince his words. He says, James 4 verse 3, um, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. He says your, your motives are, when you ask God for things, is actually based on the things that you desire in the world. It's not based on the desires to see the kingdom advance, to, to, to love God well. It is based on desires for things in the world. You want to spend it in your own passions. And then he just says, if you do this, you're an adulterous people. So we, we were speaking now this, this morning in worship as well. It's, it's kind of this love relationship between us and God. He's our bridegroom. Jesus is our bridegroom. We are his bride. It's, it's like a marriage. You can, can almost see it like that. And then he says, in this marriage, there is only room for two of us. It's only you and me. There is no space for the world to be tagged alongside you. If you try to love the world while you're loving me, this is not a marriage. Uh, it, it's, it's not like that the moment you, you're married, you say no to everyone else. The moment I married Jess, I said no to four billion women on this planet. So... <laughs> <laughs> So it's the same thing with God. The moment we enter into this relationship with God, we say no to every other potential lover, which is what the world offers. And, and then he continues. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It, it's not neutral. It's not like, ugh, I just like partially, like I'm just investing a little of time in the world. It's like, no, you, you're an enemy of God if you make yourself a friend of the world. And again, it's not talking about the people in the world. It's talking about this world system which feeds our desires. So, but uh, to go back to, to 1 John 4, where he was talking about, um, but we have overcome them. Um, so how did we overcome them? 1 John 5 explains it a bit better. He says, 1 John 5 verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God um, has overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except him who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The, the moment that you confess Jesus to be Lord, that moment you put yourself against the world system. The world system is everything that's against Christ. The moment you said, I'm going to follow this Christ, you have put yourself against the world. You've, you've closed your heart off to the world and opened your heart to Jesus. That, that is the victory that overcomes the world. Is that constantly, in every moment, opening your heart to the desires of God Closing your heart to the desires of the world. That is, that is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And uh, in, this, in this process of believing in God, we become born again. Like that's what he said, like, that we are born of God. We become new creatures, essentially. We, have, we had a heart of stone, which was unresponsive to God. We were given a heart of flesh, which then becomes responsive to him and his desires. And we now become citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. We're no longer citizens of this evil world. We're in the world, but we're no longer of this world. We were saved out of this world. And that's uh, what Ephesians 2 verse 3 also makes clear. It says that um, all of our identities, were, it was previously caught in the world. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That was the state of all of us. We were at some point fully wrapped in the system of the world. And then the amazing part, verse 4, very famous, it says, but God, God came into the situation being rich in mercy uh, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. Our hearts have been stirred for God. Our hearts have awakened to God. He has made us alive together with Christ. And becoming alive, we, have, we actually realize the death that is in the world um, and, and how rotten that is and how evil that is. So this is what it means that, um, that uh, yeah, yeah, when we, we actually break away from this, this world system, is we, we recognize how evil it is. We actually recognize the source of it, which is not from God, but it is from the enemy. Yet it doesn't mean that we are immune to its temptations. We are still tempted by the world. That is just the reality of, of our natures. We, we're not, we, we, are, we are saved, we're secure, but we are still being saved. We're still being sanctified. We're still being um, taken out, increasingly out of the kingdom of darkness. The, our heart's desires are continually being changed and renewed. And that is why John has to give us a command to say, do not love the world. If we were just miraculously changed and we had no love for the world at all anymore, he wouldn't need to say, do not love the world. Him acknowledging it is an acknowledgement of saying there is a risk still for us that we can fall back into this, into this love for the world. So that's now where 1 John 2 verse 16 is relevant again. So he's now explaining, he just said, do not love the world, um, otherwise the love of the Father is not in you. And then he carries on to say, for all that is in the world, um, the desires of the flesh, there are three things he lists, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So the desires of the, of the flesh, that is, that's your physical desires, like your desire for food, your desire for sex, your desire for all of the things that your physical body craves, um, your desire for comfort even. The desires of your eyes, that's all the things that you see, all the things that you, 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 you covet essentially. It's like, oh man, like that, that's a nice car, I wish I had that car, or, or that, that house, I wish I had that house, or that, whatever it might be, like you, you, everyone has their own uh, things that they find alluring, the desire of the eyes. And then the pride of life, that is, that's kind of this sense of worldly success. Like you have made it. Like you are, um, you've got status, you've got power, you've, you, you sit. That, that pride of life, like I'm, I'm so like self-absorbed almost as to how great I am. Um, that's the, the pride of life. And, and temptation works through these three arms, if you will. The, the one is that it, it appeals to your flesh, it appeals to your eyes, and it it appeals to your desire to be great or known or famous or, or whatever. These are the three sources of temptation, and it's always been the sources of temptation. If you go to Genesis 3, the very first temptation that ever existed, Adam and Eve in the garden, the snake comes, and he says, did God really say? So he first of all casts a bit of doubt there, but, but then he says, hey, just eat of the fruit. And then it says, verse 6, Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this desires of the flesh, it was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, desires of the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, the desires of the pride of life. Those three caught Eve in that moment, and she decided to take off the tree and eat of it, and Adam, of course, ate of it as well. So it's, it's this, these three things, they often come, like with Eve, all three at the same time, but sometimes they come individually as well, and we need to discern it, like currently... The world is trying to appeal to my desire for the flesh. It's trying to appeal to my desire for my eyes. So it's trying to make me great. It's trying to give me success. It's trying to appeal to my pride in my heart. So the first Adam failed. We all have also failed. But luckily, the second Adam, Jesus, he came and he did not fail. And we see in Matthew 4, um, the, he's, he's now, the, the father just said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then he's led into the wilderness for 40 days. He's He's fasted for 40 days. He's very hungry. 
Then the devil comes and he says, hey, but I mean, just, just turn these stones into bread. That's the desire of the flesh. Like he's hungry. I'm going to use my power to then to, to feed my own hunger. That's, that's the temptation that the devil gave. It's, it's a very subtle one. And then um, Jesus immediately responded by quoting Scripture. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second temptation was, it's a bit more interesting, and that's where his identity is being attacked. Because the devil says, prove that you are the Son of God. And he says, throw yourself off the temple and angels will catch you. Um, and then he, he, Jesus has to wrestle with this thing. I've just heard my father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And now I, need to, I, I, I feel like... I want to prove that I am truly the Son of God. It's, this identity is now at stake here. But again, he doesn't give in. He says, um, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, quotes the Bible. And then the last one, he appeals to, it's kind of like a double whammy. He appeals to the desires of the eyes and the desires of, or the pride of life at the same time. He says, um, the devil says, bow before me and I will give you all of these kingdoms uh, and the, of the world as well as their glory. All of these kingdoms of the world is the thing that Jesus wants. It's like he uh, Psalm 2 speaks about all the ki- nations of the world will come to Jesus as, as the king. So it's, it's this, this is what he's made for. This is his desire. Um, he, he sees it. He's, he wants, wants to, to have the world. He, he loves the world. And then the second thing is their glory. That's the pride of life. But again, Jesus stands firm and he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So to take a little bit from, from these two examples, when these temptations for the world come, the first very crucial step is to recognize its source. It is not from the Father. It is from the world. Recognize it for what it is. It is against God. It is not pleasing to God. It is sin. It is evil. It is birth from darkness. It's not just a, oh, I'm going to enjoy this movie or whatever. It's a, recognize its source if the temptation is there. Now, with that, I'm not making a blanket statement that everything is evil. Just recognize its source. For some people, want the, want, I'll share a testimony later, but... Um, for some people, something might be entirely fine. For others, that might be the thing that the enemy is using to try to destroy you. That might be the temptation of the world that he's pulling you into. So recognize its source. And then in James, um, just, just a recognition also that these things are not from God. Because also in James, he says that, um, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he doesn't tempt anyone. He doesn't tempt anyone. Um, by each person... But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Our temptations find their source in desires. It's like we see the things in the world, we desire these things, we are lured by them, and that is the temptation. And uh, how do we respond to temptation? Well, we need to do what Jesus did. We need to war with prayer, we need to war with the, um, with the Word, and we need to resist. Um, resisting, standing, um, staying steadfast, enduring that's what we need to, to grasp onto. Um, James 4 verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, um, he, will not, he will provide you the way of escape if you're facing temptation, that you will be able to endure it. The point is that we're not escaping the temptation, we are escaping the temptation by enduring through the temptation. So when the thing comes, when the temptation comes, it is a legitimate thing that you think this is a good idea. It's not just a, a feeling of, oh, man, like this is now leading me to sin. It's like this really seems like a good idea. To Eve, the fruit seemed like a good idea. But it's recognizing it and then enduring through that desire to actually take the thing. And we, we need to stand firm on the word and pray like I was saying. That's, that's our weapons. Jesus gave us the model prayer. He said, um, lead, us not in tempta- lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
So in that moment when you're feeling the temptation drawing you, it's like, Lord, deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from this temptation. And the Lord is faithful. He will deliver you, but you need to endure through it. And I, I want to argue that the, how well you resist, how well you endure through temptations is a very good indication of how far along your spiritual maturity growth you've actually come. It, the, 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 the young men, they have overcome the evil one. They have overcome these temptations that constantly come their way. So if you feel like you're not overcoming these temptations that come your way, just maybe reevaluate your spiritual growth as well there. Don't think higher of yourself than you are. Become humble before the Lord as, as, as uh, clay in his hands so that he can form these things in you. Okay, last verse in 1 John 2 verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's, it's so often that we hear that, you know, you must just love God or you must just have faith. But these things have evidence in your life. If you truly love God, it will be visible in your life that you love Him. The way that you see that you love God is you're doing the will of God. The way that you see that I love my wife is I do things that make her happy or I do things that she desires. There's a, a desire in my heart to do what actually makes her happy, that pleases her, that, that puts her in strength. Um, in the same way, if we really love God, it will be evidence in our lives that we are doing His will. So this is now where it gets tricky. How do we know what His will is? Because on the one hand, yes, we've got the Bible. There are some black and white things in there. But the majority of things in life is not black and white. It's very gray. And we need to be able to discern what the will of the Lord is in the middle of the, the, the treacherous world that we're living in so we can actually navigate through it. And uh, Romans 12 verse 2 gives us a bit of a guide to that. It says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, do not just do what the world does. Do not just go along with them. Um, really take pause for a moment and say, okay, well, let me rather be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Let me think about every situation in a new way that by testing or proving, you may discern what is the will of God. If the will of God was obvious, we would not need to discern what the will of God is. There are many situations in life that you, each of you are facing on a daily basis where it's not super obvious, is this now the will of God or not? And I, I want to share a, um, a story, or let's just first, uh, finish the verse, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What are those good, acceptable, and perfect things that God actually wants you to walk in? Um, not just what is good according to your own mind. And, and this renewing of our mind is, is an ongoing process, and the Lord luckily doesn't reveal all of the things to us that we need to renew our minds in one shot. He does this kind of little bit by little bit. It's almost like he's saying, I want that piece of your heart, just that, that little piece, just, just give me that piece. And then it's like, oh, this is such a hard thing. Okay, but Lord, here's that piece of my heart. And then he says, okay, but great, now I'm so glad I have this piece, but now I want that piece of your heart. And he keeps doing this. That's how he renews our mind, is he constantly... Uh, teaches us as we go through, through life to say that these things are not the things that I have for you. These are the, the temptations of the world. Just say no to them. So, so this is not my story. It's like I've, uh, I've got actually several, but this is, uh, I think, a, a very neutral one, which most people um, might not obviously think of. So at, at some point, I, I, I really enjoyed reading fantasy books. So uh, dragons and uh, elves and dwarves and all of these things. And I'm not specifically speaking against the genre or specifically also not Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. There are a lot of good things, especially in Chronicles of Narnia, that is a good analogy for, for Jesus and Aslan and all those things. So I'm not against any of that. But, but the Lord was coming to me and he was saying, I want you to stop reading fantasy books. 
That's, that's all he said. I'm like, okay, but Lord, it's not sin. I mean, like, it's, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's just, it's just a little bit of recreation. I mean, like, I'm just, I, I've, I've had a busy time or whatever. I just want to just read something that is not engineering related. I just want to read a little bit of <laughs> fantasy. And uh, the, the Lord was saying, no, but I want you to stop reading fantasy novels. And it was as if the, the it really was actually for some reason a, a big struggle for me because I was like, I'm halfway in the story. I want to know what gonna, what's going to happen. But he's like, no, I want you to stop now. And it, it's, this, it's this thing of, okay, Lord, I'm going to renew my mind in this. And then as I was doing that, coming through it, I realized, oh, shucks, this actually took a lot of my free time that I could have spent with the Lord. This actually, has, this, this was a time sink for me because these novels are huge. So it, it takes like 20 hours to read one. And, and it's like, okay, well, that time could have been spent so much better. The Lord was gradually renewing my mind in these areas. And, and that's what he does with, with all things, all desires. So making it a lot more practical now, what, what do we do with our desires? So, so you might say, well, is it wrong to desire lunch after church? Is it wrong to desire a job to get money? Or is it wrong to desire a spouse? I mean, like God said, um, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Is it wrong to desire a child? God said, be fruitful and multiply. Is it wrong to desire a healthy body? Is it wrong to desire a good night's rest? Is it wrong to desire a good evening with friends? And I want to say, yes, it is wrong. If it's not rooted in a desire for God primarily, if the source of all of those desires is not a desire or a love for God, yes, then those desires are wrong. Um, if you desire dinner, but you desire it because it's, it's, uh, you're thankful to God for, for His provision in your life, or you desire a job because you see it as an opportunity for you to be light in the darkness, extending His kingdom in areas in the marketplace where you might not have been heard otherwise. You desire a spouse because you see together you will be better for the kingdom of God, more effective than you would have been if you were apart. You desire children because we need children that can be light to the next generation. Um, you desire uh, all of these things not for this, their sake in themselves, but you desire it because they are based in an acknowledgement and a desire of God. And that's what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 gets at. It says, so whether you eat or drink, the most trivial things in life, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If there is one thing in your life that is not if you look at it, this is not done to the glory of God, then you are not properly loving the Lord in that area. All of the things should be based and, and wrapped up in the love of God. So, yeah, then to end, um, you, you might be listening to me and say, but, yeah, okay, I, I maybe noticed that I, I, I love the world a little bit too much or I love things in the world, um, and I maybe don't have this love in my heart for the Lord at the moment. Now, I want to say there are probably two two groups of people here, if that is your experience, either you have not been born again. There is a, uh, this is our victory that overcomes the world, is the, we being born of God. Our faith is our victory. So maybe that has not been your experience. And, and maybe even you, you've been around Christians for such a long time that you kind of act like Christians, but you've never actually been born again. There's this part in Second Timothy where it says, um, for men will be lovers of selves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasures, Rather than lovers of God, that is the natural inclination of man. Is they are lovers of the things that the world offers, not lovers of God. According to a form of religion, but denying the power of it. Having a form of godliness. You, you might be of that, that group. It's like, okay, actually, just for a moment, realize actually your state of being. Call upon God. Call for his salvation that you will actually be born again. And the second group is that uh, there, there was a time in your life where you you knew the love of God. Like you, you knew what it was like to desire God above everything else that the world could potentially offer you. You still chose Him. You still wanted Him. 
but then somewhere along the road, your love has started to grow, and grow a little bit cold, and you, you're not, your heart is no longer responding to God in that way. And, and surprisingly, the solution to both of these groups is exactly the same. The same spirit that initially gives life is the same spirit that nourishes and boils up life again. This, the same word that ignited the fire for the love of God in your heart is the same word that will rekindle that fire. Get into the word. This, the, the same Jesus that brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light wants to again take you out of the darkest night of your soul and bring you into his fullness of life. So yield to the spirit. Today, if you don't know him in that way, yield to him. Immerse yourself in the word. Find the truths of scripture. Let your, your mind be renewed by them. And cry out to Jesus for salvation. Cry out for this, Lord, save me. I need you. I can't do life without you. I need to know you. I need to know your salvation and your, the love that you pour inside of my heart so that I can do what you, you've called me to. So don't be content with just being lukewarm. Don't be content with just partially loving the Lord and partially loving the world. These two are enemies of one another. They are against each other. Do not love the world. Otherwise, the love of the Father is not in you. Pursue a new passion for Jesus.